Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with recovery coach, certified interventionist, and co-host of the Overcoming Adversity podcast, Amanda Marino. Thanks for coming on the show, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. And I want to hear more about your recovery coaching and definitely the podcast. But first, I'd really like to just jump right in and ask a little bit about your own story. So what was going on before you actually got sober? Well, I had been introduced to recovery very young. I was 14 when I first was introduced to it. My, my aunt was in recovery in and out and my dad was um, a recovering alcoholic. Okay. So I was first introduced to the rooms, um, you know, to 12 step fellowships around 14. And then yeah. I was in and out, you know, of institutions um, detention, juvenile detention center centers and, um, rehabs until I was 26. Wow. Wow. Okay. And, and so where did the, the addiction itself actually start and what did that look like? Well, it's funny because we can look at people's lives and say, Oh, well, this person had this great childhood and this great life. And then mm -hmm. this person had this horrific one and we all ended up in the same place. But I think right. that it's just how, how we're some somewhat built, but I, I had a lot of childhood trauma. Um, my sister was kidnapped in front of me when I was seven, wow. um, brought to Canada. And um, the guy tried to take me too. It was actually um, her father. He hired somebody to do the actual kidnapping. And he was like the driver. And he was also my sexual abuser and you know physically assaulted my mother and I. So when I saw him, I was like flagging this car down through the, after the kidnapping. And I thought it was going to be somebody that would help me. And it was him. And it was like, Oh shit, you know, and they ended up taking her out of the country. Wow. So um, I believe that I didn't trust adults. I had been abused. Mm -hmm. I had been, you know, went through all of those things as a child that right away I started reaching for things outside of myself to make myself feel better. Okay. And, and so what did that, was that like drinking at first and, and just like, to what extent was it going on? Was it just dabbling a little bit or were you like me where it was just kind of full force? Well, it started, I mean, we, of course we can, we, as we look back at our story, things appear, but my first addiction yeah. was def definitely shoplifting, um, oh, taking wow. okay. at like eight years old and getting away with it was like, Man, a that, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> that was me. Yeah. That's awesome. Stealing, like candy and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Right. And not a lot of people get that, you know, yeah. like, not that I couldn't, my mom couldn't get it for me or whatever, but I liked, I liked getting away with it and I liked getting caught. Wow. Cause I got attention, you yeah. know, yeah. and so I was good with both. So then I first tried um, marijuana at nine. Okay. And then um, I have to be quiet. I have a teenager in the other room. <laughs> don't, he doesn't, try, he, don't tell them about the marijuana. <laughs> he knows, but he doesn't need to know all that. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so, you know, so then I was, you know, 
basically this, the eighth grade summer, um, going into high school, I found, I found all the bad boys, you know, all the drug dealers, all the bad boys. And, and then that, that just was gone after that, you know, just really found my place of, of getting outside myself constantly. And mm. it's kind of a garbage can as far as substances really. Yeah. A little bit of everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I, I learned a lot doing this podcast and, I've definitely sh thought about like the shoplifting and the stealing stuff, you know, when I was younger before the drugs and, and alcohol or any of that even started, but I'm making a little more of a connection there in terms of how it relates to, you know, my substance abuse and just my story. So, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. Well, cause it takes us out. It's the same kind of, it's like, I got a rush from it. I got a high and I got a high if I got away with it and I got a high if I got caught. So like either way, it was a win-win for me, you yeah. know? Yeah. It was a full addiction. Wow. And, and and you also got into modeling and acting at a pretty young age too, right? Yeah. So I was um, four when I was like in my first runway show. And then I oh, did wow. a, lot of, a lot of print ads and um, commercials, you know, as a young, you know, young girl. And then as I got older, um, you know, started to dance in hip hop, hip hop videos. I danced in the Ricky Martin, She Bangs video. Oh, wow. Um, I danced for Kid Rock, Britney Spears. I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and, and, and go, go ahead. ahead. When I was younger, the industry was very clean cut. Like I always had to have somebody over 18 with me for any photo shoot or anything like that. But in that industry, they prey upon you when you're about to turn 18. And that's when they try to, you know, get you to do things that, you know, are inappropriate that we hear about nowadays. Yeah, yeah. With the whole Me Too movement and, and everything yeah. else going on. Yeah. And, and so where do you think all of that fits into just trauma the the relationship to it your your addiction and substance abuse like where does all that fit in well i was labeled as a pretty girl and that for me gave made me feel good and it was who i was and i you know i identified with that and it made me not have to think about um all the things i had been through you know it helped fill a hole for me it was another thing that filled filled a hole you know if i had that kind of attention and, and whether it was positive or negative as i shifted older it was you know it was part of who i was and i really had a hard time um when i got clean and sober knowing that i wasn't going to go back to that ever and that was like really hard for me to think of all the all the dreams that i had really destroyed like i started going to auditions completely out of it and up from the night before embarrassing myself in front of famous people and that was really, you know, like a lot of shame and guilt, you know, and thinking of all, this was my dream my whole life. But then guess what? So many, so many better things have happened in my life that have so much more depth and meaning today, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I certainly want to hear more about that because like I've said many times on the show, we try to focus, put a lot of focus on the solution and, and the good stuff going on after the, the substances and everything else we go through on our journey. So I, I do want to know though. So I mean, you're basically describing a lot of stuff going on in your childhood, starting the substance abuse, you know, relatively young, uh, mm -hmm. these lost dreams, as you described it, you know, kind of figuring out that, hey, this, this might not be the path that I actually end up taking this, this thing I've wanted to do for so long, which is driving a lot of guilt and shame and other stuff. Where does this lead in terms of a, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, rock bottom, defining moment uh, that starts to make this shift into sobriety and like how bad do things actually have to end up getting before you decide to, to make some kind of change? 
Ooh, well, that's a lot. There's a lot in that. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, like, like I was somebody that when I was doing, doing good, I was like really good at sports. I was really good at everything I did. I put my heart in. So I've always been a very passionate person, but when I got into drugs and, and alcohol, like I also was that way. I, I really like it did it well, you know? Um, and it went from a party scene, fun girl, party girl to, you know, alone at my house, you know, with an 18 month old child, couldn't stop taking pills and, and doing cocaine and drinking all night, you know, um, and not able to function as a mom. So, and I, and I woke up and I was in treatment and I had been in a few times and I was like, what the hell happened to me? First of all, I was 200 pounds. I didn't know how I got from that to that. I forgot like 10 years. I had like a whole blackout. Wow. I mean, of course things have come to me. Um, but I had, you know, I found when I found my aunt dead, I found her passed away in her bed to the disease. Um, I had about three months sober. My son was was born. I was trying to get sober. When I found her passed away in her bed, I could see her through the window. She didn't answer her phone. She was blue. Um, I got worse before I got better. And then I used money she left me to go to treat, to go to rehab. Wow. Yeah. So I, I was calling, this was Yellow Pages days when you found treatment centers in Yellow Pages, not online. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, I was Googling, you know, looking through um, Yellow Pages and I found a place down the street for me and, and I could still see my son and, and have him involved in the care. So that was really important to me. But when I went there, I still was an asshole. Like I was the first, for the first month, I was still like that client, like, you know, punched a guy, mooned a staff member, was causing <laughs> ruckus, smuggled in energy drinks, ran away down the road, cursing out my therapist. Like I was a disaster. And one day the owner just sat me down and that was my first spiritual awakening. Well, I had a few, but this was the first one of clear clarity. He sat me down and he was like, Amanda, what the hell are you doing? Like you are here, you have nowhere to go. You've been in and out of treatment centers for over 10 years. Like whatever he I thought he was a complete jerk, sure. but whatever he said to me, it was like the message I needed to hear. And I, I have goosebumps. Like that day forward, I swear, I just started to do one little suggestion at a time that people said, cause I wasn't sold on it. I had to try it. I believed it could work for you, but it started to get better. Wow, that's awesome. And I'm guessing uh, maybe occasionally, just as payback, you get a few of those clients uh, <laughs> these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Times 10. <laughs> That's funny. So, you, you know, and I, I love that um, what you just described, you know, is a, a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience, one of them that you had. And it was this moment of someone being direct with you. And I've heard that so many times. And I think that's such an important part in this whole deal is like, figuring out a way to have those people around you, right? That are going to be direct and just like tell you the shit you need to hear, right? And and so many of the the defining moments in, in my life and in my recovery were moments like that where someone, maybe I didn't like the person very much, but they said something that I really needed to hear. And I needed to hear it right then. And yeah. and I could tell that they were telling me because they actually cared. And And if they didn't care, maybe they wouldn't have said anything. Right. It's about the message sometimes, not the messenger. And then I found the man like 10 years later and thanked him and before he actually oh, wow. passed away from cancer. So I, wow. you know, I thanked him for saving my life because it was like that divine intervention that was like shook me. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? You know, what am yeah. I doing? Like, well, that's cool. You got yeah. to thank him though. So yeah, it was cool. It was I, cool. I know that you, uh, you know, you credit your son with kind of saving you from from addiction so to speak what what do you mean by that how, how so 
Well, you know, sometimes we we're so detached from everything, like in ourselves, we don't really initially want to do it for ourselves. But once we're there, we have to continue to do it for ourselves. So, you know, the guilt and shame I had from the kind of mother I was for the first 18 months of his life, you know, leaving him in soiled diapers, um, you know, not having that emotional mom son connection with him because I had resentments that it was taking me away from my party. Um, I wasn't ready, you know, I wanted him, but I wasn't ready. I didn't know how to be a mom. I didn't know how to be a, a woman by myself, you know? So, um, it, it was, it was really hard to look at myself and to think of the kind of mom I was and I couldn't, I really couldn't take it anymore. And so he was my prime motivator and he always, listen, you know, they say kids pick up on things like if you're, if you're depressed, your kid usually is behavioral. My son was like an angel. He was happy all the time. He was Mr. Happy Baby, we called him. And he just was like a bright light. And he just was my inspiration. And then as I went to treatment, you know, he was coming and visiting me. And then as I got out and I was a, a single mom with him and he, he went with me half the time and his dad half the time, I learned what love was. I fell in love with him. And the first time ever in my life, like good, like real depth, clean, that love, like he taught me what it is. So he truly saved my life. Wow. That's really cool. And I, I've also got to rewind and say the fact that you had a moment of clarity or whatever, maybe you got some guidance on this from someone, but to take the money that you inherited from your aunt to use it for treatment. I mean, thank God, because I probably would have done something a lot, a lot different with that money uh, at the time. Yeah. Well, it was not in my hands because I don't know that I would have either. It was, okay. in, my, it was in my mom's hands. But okay, yeah. good. It was, it was definitely divine intervention. It was the best way I could honor her, you know? Yeah. I like that. I like that. Now I, I want to ask a lot of what you do is interventions, right? Mm -hmm. And most of what I know about interventions personally is just what I've seen on TV, you know, the show intervention, hearing little bits and pieces, uh, you know, from other people in recovery that have experienced interventions. So I, I'd really like to hear a little bit more from a professional about this. What what do you think are some of the main maybe misconceptions about what interventions are? Well, I'll often families we speak to think that we're like coming in like gangbusters and going to like grab their loved one and make <laughs> them come with us. And like, I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. They think it's, they don't think it's an act of love. They think it's us coming in there and like, you know, beating people up and dragging people out by their hair. And it's, it's quite the opposite. It's a very, very loving event, okay. you know? Yeah. Well, so that's well, a big conception. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, and so I guess that leads me to my next question. Like what is really the root purpose of an intervention? Is it, is it really to get someone to seek treatment? Is it just an opportunity for loved ones to express themselves? Is it, what, what is really the main thing that, that you're after when, um, you know, doing an intervention? So there's a multitude of things. So first, when a family reaches out, you know, and we, we do like a first caller screening. So we document that we have like a form that we fill out just to get a bunch of information. Um, one thing we let the family members know is that we want to help their loved one, but we're going to help them too. And so we want people to, to work with us that are going to do work themselves because listen, we know it's a family disease and that not only the person that's addicted is affected, everyone else is affected, whether it's the, you know, how the family system functions or what, how things, traumas in, in the home or whatever has gone on that everyone has to do work. So we let people know that, you know, right away. 
um, you know, the style that we do often is, you know, so we, we, we have um, a registered psychiatric nurse who does all of our screenings. So she speaks to each family member, each person identified and, um, you know, just gets a bunch of background information, family history. Let's see if it goes through, you know, the fan, like, is it go back in generations? Like, what are we looking at? What's the prime, prime uh, thing? Is there, is there childhood trauma? Is there trauma in life? Is there um, eating disorder? What, we, we just want to get as much information as we can. Mm, and wow. then, yeah, and then we, we work with the family to help them find the best kind of, you know, spot. We give them a few options, let them choose based upon, you know, finances, resources. And then we either, there's two models. We either invite them, let them know they're coming to some kind of thing. Like we've been told, called patient advocates. We've been called, you know, all kinds of different terms. Okay. Um, and then we have a sit down meeting. Um, we do the, a pre-intervention, like the, the pre-game kind of thing before, the day before to run through. And then the day of, we do the actual family meeting. In situations where we're scared the person will run because of their history, mm -hmm. then sometimes we do the surprise model where they walk in and, you know, like the show intervention, you know, they walk yeah. in and everyone's sitting there. Okay. I'm just thinking like, there's just a lot of moving parts in something yeah. like this, you know, yeah. and I guess I was thinking about maybe even your story a little bit where you know, and, and what you were describing, just some of the events in your childhood where it was someone, you know, kind of close to you that was part of the problem, so to speak, to put it simply. I guess I'm just thinking, like, how do you try to deal with this whole family? Like you said, it's a family disease, right? So maybe there's, there's people, you know, that are really part of the problem more so. I, I mean, do you sometimes ask people, like not to be part of the intervention or like, how do you, I'm just, this just seems like there's a lot going on here. Yeah, no, definitely. We, there's, I mean, recently we did one where the mom, we asked the mom not to come of her okay. son because it was just not a help. It's cause it's not about, you know, the, it is, of course it is important for the families to get out their, their things and have their letters and, and have that, that kind of thing. But it's really about somebody that's in a life or death situation that is too, that cannot see clearly and like trying to get them to have a moment, like to give them an opportunity to get the substances removed. Maybe they go just to say yes to their family or whatever their reason is that day because we're interrupting the cycle of addiction. But if they get there and then they get clean and they get properly medicated if they need it, then they have the opportunity to really get better for themselves. Kind of like I did. You know, maybe my motivation at first was my son, but it ended up being for me as I was able to be like, oh God, what did I do? You know, what happened? Because they, yeah. they don't realize what they're doing. Mm. There are a lot of moving pieces, but sometimes we ask family members not to come. I identified one time an aunt was too dramatic, even in her screening. And I was like, nope, she can't come. Like she's going to make it all about her. Mm. And we just don't need that. You know, okay. we want it to be a peaceful, loving event. Doesn't always happen, but sure. you know, that's what okay. we're, the aim is. That makes sense. I guess that's that's one thing that I hadn't considered and why I really wanted to ask you about this is there's there's a lot of planning that goes on before. It's not just like, all right, guys, let's get together in this room and, you know, right. write a letter to them. And, and OK, that makes that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Well, like if someone calls me and says, hey, can you do an intervention tomorrow? I want to be like, I'm not the person for you. Like I need like preparation time. I need to do a lot of research like you know, we have to, if we have to get other professionals involved, a licensed clinician or my partner's a certified addiction professional. And, but if it just depends, like who do we need to get involved? Like it needs planning time. We want to go in safely. We want to know as much information as we can. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I would think that would lead to 
maybe not necessarily more success always in the terms of that person accepting treatment, but at least it's more likely not to be just a huge blow up or, or something like that. Right. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, and we discussed like these moments where, where people were direct with us or we heard some things we needed to hear. How often have you seen someone come into the intervention and they're super defensive uh, like from the beginning or they're saying like, no, I don't have a problem or maybe they're in denial or whatever. And then at the end of it, they're like, man, like, this is what I needed to hear. Like, I do need help. Like, does that, does that happen very often? Just like yeah. in this one hour, how long is it? Would an intervention be typically? I mean, I've had some where someone says yes right away before okay. we can go around the room. And then I've had ones where it's taken us like hours to really wow. work you know, having a break off in groups and whatnot, like how oh, wow. we, we usually work in pairs. So mm -hmm. um, one person stay with the family, one person go with the individual, the identified loved one, or, you know, just, it's, it, it's really like, we can go in with all these plans too. And we just don't know what's going to happen, but we do work with the family prior. Like we try to get them to do a support meeting before we send them tons of resources to educate themselves. We work with them on, on understanding and how to, you know, how to speak to their loved one and provide book, you know, like a whole list of resources for, for them to be able to have support themselves. So the family work before is, is huge to do. I so can understand. They're good before a little better, you know? Okay. I can understand that. And how much of that is about just the enabling side of things that, that might be going on? Oh, there's so much enabling. Okay. So much. It's very hard for parents to not, to not attach like loving with monetary or giving or constantly allowing them to do the same things over. Like they don't, it's hard. I can understand it as a mom. I totally can get it. But like when we, we have to get kind of firm with people sometimes and they don't always like it. You know, they yeah. don't always want to hear me to say, listen, your family is, is needs help. Your whole family needs help. Not just your person, your son, you need help. You need to go to therapy. And, you know, we want you to work with a therapist. We want you to do coaching with us. We want you to get immersed in this while your loved one's in treatment. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Part of the reason I ask is when I went to treatment, I remember there was like, and I think this is pretty common. There was like a family weekend right? Mm -hmm. Or on the weekends, like there was a family meeting type of thing. And there was this counselor, this, this guy, Chris, it was just really great. And he would always start the meeting off because of course, the one thing I didn't like is it was like literally every week in the exact same, same you know, exact same meeting. Cause sometimes like certain family members couldn't make it or whatever, but he would always start the meeting off by saying like, Hey, you know, family members, mom, dad, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. You're here because you're part of the problem. And that would really piss some people off. Like, I what? Love it. like how am I part of the problem? You right. know? And it, it makes sense. So, I mean, I, and I had to tell my parents like right off the bat, like, you know, when I was finally getting honest about everything, I do not need any cash. Like do not give me cash for any reason right. whatsoever. <laughs> Right. Was it your mom, especially? Because usually moms with the boys. Oh, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, like me and my mom are, are super tight. And, uh, you know, I was hitting her, her up for, you know, three to four oil changes a month. And, uh, you know, flat tires and, and all that stuff, you know, and she would always, uh, always help me out. And, and I'm not a parent yet, but I do get it. It's like, you, you don't want to see your kid in pain. And, um, you know, and you, it's so easy to be in denial about things. And I can only imagine because I was in such denial about what was going on with me. So of 
of course, like my parents would be in denial about it. Right. They are. And when a parent tells me something like, oh, well, if my daughter goes to rehab for 30 days, I'm going to buy her a new car and do this and this. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you know, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I literally saw that happen. There was a girl in rehab who got like a brand new Mustang. As oh, yeah. This is out. a very like, like, let's motivate her with a car. And it's like, oh, no, no, let her earn a car. Or what do I do if my daughter, you know, has all this credit that, that, that I'm like, she's 35 years old. Let her like handle it herself. You know, like they don't, they want to fix everything. They want to, mm -hmm. that's just what they're used to. So the families need a lot of work too. Yeah. Yeah. That know? makes, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, you're also a recovery coach, right? And yeah. there are a lot of people out there these days that either uh, claim to be recovery coaches or they are really recovery coaches, but there's a, there's a lot of people or a lot more people, which I think is a good thing for the most part, a yeah. lot more people in the space, right? What, what would you say really sets you apart from maybe what uh, what other people are doing? Or like, what do you really focus on as a recovery coach? Um, well, so with, with my interventions and with my coaching, like I did a number of trainings um, and I learned under people and did like supervision for, for interventions. I did for like two years of supervisions and second sharing and all that stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and did a lot of clinical supervision. And then for my coaching, I have the She Recovers um, designation coach training. I have a life coach training certification and um, another recovery coach certification. So I just constantly am, am you know, immersing myself in, in learning, you know, and growing in that area. Um, I think that I do best with women that are moms um, that are getting sober. Um, that's like my, my passion because of, you know, probably because of what I've gone through, but right. understanding that dynamic, that how hard it is to learn who you are at the same time as you're trying to raise children is really hard. And I think that the reason for the rise of the coaching, um, in this recovery, I mean, life coaching has been big forever, but in the recovery space is like sponsor for 12 step fellowships is super important. If you have, you know, trauma and you need a therapist, but like, what, what about like, who's going to check on you? Who's going to hold you accountable? So it's like, I reach out to my clients, hold them accountable. I, I see them in person. I do Zooms with them. I text with them. I FaceTime with them. I'm very, very involved. I help them come up with goals, um, you know, whatever they want to work towards in life. And I also like get release assigned for their therapist so we can communicate. Like if they're working on trauma and therapy, I know I need to support them after that therapy session. I need to be there for them. So I'm kind of like the in-between. Um, for either people that don't need to go to treatment, I haven't gotten to that point or have completed treatment and need that, you know, that extra piece. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I think you identified a couple things, but, um, and I, I certainly, although I didn't have a, a recovery coach early on sobriety, like I did do, uh, therapy and, um, you know, and I'm a 12 step guy. So I had a sponsor. I, I certainly, and I'm a coach myself, a, a nutrition and fitness coach. So I see like the benefit in coaching. I think you brought up an interesting question though. Like for someone that, that is maybe has a sponsor and they're in whatever stage of recovery, maybe they're new or they've been around a little while. And they're kind of wondering, like, why would I really need a recovery coach? Like, what you know, on top of my sponsor, like, and I think, again, I think you already identified a few things, but what would you maybe throw out to that person to, to have them think about, you know, the, the benefits of this a little bit? Um, well, there's a few different things. So one, a recovery coach is definitely not for everybody. So, you know, some people don't need it. 
or don't want it. Um, so that's one piece. Um, another one is if you're like, I, I've been working with a number of people that are like in their recovery for a while and just feel kind of stagnant and like yeah. struggle with going after goals or struggle with, um, you know, really taking things to the next, to the, my company's name, the next level, but really taking things to the next level. And that I've been able to, to do that pretty effortlessly. Um, I mean, I've worked very hard, but it comes very natural to me. So I love to help empower others just for some, you know, it's really about working with them and helping them walk the journey and walking it with them, but just empowering people. So if people have struggled to stay sober and have tried a lot of things, that's when a good, it's a good thing. When people have the extra resource and might not set them up with the best support from the get-go, that's when it's good. Um, because a sponsor's job is to take you through the 12 steps. A coach's job is to help you how to like organize your life and figure things out and navigate your day. So, um, you know, like I, like I have some clients I speak to all day, literally. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's probably a lot of it is about just developing a plan, right? Like how do I, how do I fit all these different things, including my recovery? Like how do I make this all work together? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then the, the whole element of being a parent, you know, it, it's very hard for moms to try to find, especially, you know, well, especially working moms or stay at home moms, you know, trying to figure all that out. Well, you know, like I had a woman recently discharged from like a long-term program and, you know, she had to come home. She had been away for a while. She had two kids to come home to a husband, um, you know, parent or parent, like just so many moving pieces and like trying to adjust back to being home after being in residential care. It's a lot like she needed a little extra support, you know? Yeah. Um, and that then makes they, sense. We get creative. We get creative for whatever somebody needs, you know, sometimes okay. taking them out to go do something fun and let's show them that you can have fun in recovery, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's, which is so important. Now I, I want to ask you for, cause I, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of people that are new to recovery. Could you identify maybe one or two of, I'm just going to call them mistakes. I mean, we all make mistakes. We all trip up a little bit, whether, you know, and hopefully we learn from them. So I think a lot of the times, like I, I truly believe nothing, you know, happens uh, by mistake, right. um, including the mistakes themselves. You know, they're, they're yeah. there for a reason, hopefully to learn from, from, like I said, could you identify maybe one or two of the mistakes that you see people making when, when trying to get sober early on in recovery? The first one that comes to mind is too much too fast. You know, we like did all this stuff. We did all this time and we want it all to be better right away. So yeah. like, I remember the, the slogan of may you have a slow and painful recovery, you know, oh, and I, I haven't heard that one. I like that. <laughs> well, it's true. Like I didn't, I used to look at people when I was new and see people getting like, you know, material stuff quick. And I like was struggling and I struggled for a really long time, but thank God I did because I appreciate what I have today. Like I worked hard. Nobody, I was, I was always handed everything when I was a young girl, you know? And so now I've had to work for things as an adult and I appreciate and value them. So don't go for too much too fast. Like give yourself time. Um, the other thing is a big recovery topic, which is relationships. You know, I had my, I had left my son's father right when I got home from treatment and I needed to figure out who I was. And I was not about a guy, you know, I had always been living with a boyfriend or whatever okay. my whole life. Yeah. I'm married to my son's father. And when we split up, I, I took like four years of like me time. I casually dated a little, but nothing serious and for four years. So I think really taking that time because you deserve to get to know yourself and to fall in love with yourself and 
and find out who you are and what you enjoy doing. Like I had a house when I was newly sober that had like a little fireplace. So I'd like light the fire and have incense go in. And, you know, like I would just do these fun things by my sleep that I never did, you know? Yeah, no, I, you know, that's, so this is a topic that comes up on the show pretty frequently. And in a recent episode, um, we actually had on a guy named Joaquin who started the, uh, uh, the castle app, clean and sober love. So it's a, a dating app for people in sobriety. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they have apps for, for everything. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. I've, heard, I've heard of them and they just are after my time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I didn't go, uh, I feel pretty grateful. Like I didn't have to do the, the dating app thing because it does seem pretty, pretty crazy, but, but you know, that was one of the things that we talked about. It's been talked about a few different times. I, and I see like, again, part of the reason I like doing the show is because like it has opened my mind up to some different thinking. I, I, I think that I lean more towards what you're saying, like with the relationships early on. Um, although I was in a long-term relationship and I'm, I'm married to her now, mm. I had no idea who the hell I was when I got sober. Right. And so I don't know who I am. She didn't know who I was, uh, especially not when like I'm doing things like starting to like meditate and say, you know, she's like, who the hell is this guy? Right? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah, you? yeah, like, yeah. What what did they do to him there? You know, in these thirty days. Um, so I, I think I get that. Like, we really need to spend some time with our ourselves, and and we're not going to figure it out overnight, right? But it's like, what do I want? And, and who do I want? Who do I want to be? You know, because yeah. now I have some choices. I, I don't have to. You talked about identifying as the pretty girl, right? Younger er, earlier on, like you were identified as that and, and you held on, you know, you kind of claim that. And it's like, I don't have to be that person that I identified as for so long, you know, and I have some choices. Who do I want to be now? And I think we need to take the time to look into that. But on the flip side, I've also had some people point out to me that maybe it's different for some people, you know, and maybe they, you know, maybe they're a little more mature socially. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, I see both sides of it. I think I lean more towards what you're saying though. It, it, it definitely is different for everyone. You know, I know five friends that got married right when they were new people or whatever in recovery oh, wow. and they're still together today. But like yeah. I had never, for me, I had never in my entire life ever been alone. Okay. And so for me to figure out and learn who I was and thank God I did it. Cause now mm -hmm. I have a daughter and remarried. I have a daughter, a little girl who's <laughs> like my attachment. Like I had that, that half a week when my son went to his dad's to like be completely alone, like take myself out to dinner. Like I'm so grateful for those four years of, of that time, you know, before I got remarried and, and, you know, all that stuff and had another child, it was the best gift I could have ever given myself. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, and as you just said, you know, being alone, I think that was one of the biggest things I learned too, uh, is it like how to be okay with being just with me? Because for so long, I was one of those people that, always had to have like the TV on in the background or something just to like, because I really couldn't stand being alone with myself. Like I didn't want to hear what was going on in right. my head, you know? Right. And that's a huge part of, of, I believe recovery. So I also kind of believe in the, the, the way that if you don't do it now, like in the beginning, you're gonna, it's gonna come out in another way and you're gonna have to work on it later 
in another way. I really believe that. Um, just like with other things that have surfaced in recovery, like, you know, at nine years, all of a sudden I had body issues, never had it in my whole life. Like, okay, I had to do work on that. You know, as I'm approaching my, you know, my late thirties, you know, I'm going to be 40 next. So like I had to, I mean, there's just new things that come up. And I think that it, sometimes if we don't, if we push things to the side and don't deal with them, they come up in another way. And then we have to deal with them anyways. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I get what you're saying. Like, although it's, it's not easy early on, like address as much as possible in the beginning. And, and I, I think I understand that, you know, if anything, just from the perspective of, you know, if there are th some things that I should be doing early on in my recovery, I think a lot of the times it's not very likely that we're ever going to address them or, or ever start doing them. Right. It's like, you know, if, if someone does decide that a 12 step program is good for them, it's like, you know, if you don't get a sponsor within the first few months or, or whatever it is, like, is it really likely that you're, that you're going right. to do this? Right. You know? Right, exactly. Like this is my alone time. You see this? This is it. I don't get any alone time anymore. I have a house full of people. <laughs> I love it, but like I cherish that first four years, you know. Yeah. And then I, I now I I'm fine if I travel alone. If I have to travel for, I, I mean, I'm totally good alone. I love it. Yeah, I don't get alone cool. anymore. <laughs> I, I asked I asked you about never alone, never alone. I asked you about some of the things that that people might struggle with early on in recovery and. Um, you know, your company being called Next Level, uh, which I love. I've seen a lot of a lot of people and definitely some guys that I know in recovery that have some time. And it's like something hasn't clicked. Like, you know, a lot of the times I think it shows up in terms of like, I don't want to say just financially, but maybe what they're doing, like, for their careers or, or kind of with their lives, or maybe it's, um, they haven't taken care of their health. It's like all these different things that pop up. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you see? And I know this is a really broad question, but what do you see as being maybe one of the biggest barriers? It's like holding people back that have been sober for a while and they, they can't get to that next level. Like, what, what are some of the things that you end up addressing with these people to like really help them take their, their recovery to that next level, even though they've been sober for a little while? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's always identifiable, but sometimes I think people think it's just about stopping, you know, using drugs and alcohol, you know, and that's, they're good with that. Like if they're not getting wasted or, or, you know, getting high, they're fine. Um, for me, it was like, I had to, I have to, when I knew all the things that I had like, you know, destroyed all these great opportunities, I had to know that there was something ahead for me, like in my, my sobriety. And I set kind of outlandish goals for myself, but, um, I think that people settle. I think that, I mean, there's something with being grateful for where you are and, and being grateful for what you have. Like, I believe in keeping your feet in the day and being grateful, but there is nothing wrong with, with going after and reaching for the stars and believing that you're capable of anything. And I think we suffer from low self-esteem as, as collectively as people in early recovery, um, or people in recovery. We don't think that we're worth it. We don't know that there's more out there for us. Like sometimes I identify with people like they were looking for a job and I'm like, well, if you, you're applying for all these jobs that you don't have any interest in, why don't you try to create something like and, and, and give yourself a little freedom, do a few side jobs financially, and then you can go towards your goal. Like people don't often think like that. So I think that, um, I think people limit themselves and 
you know, I am a huge 12 step person too, but there's also been a lot of additions on top of that for me, like yeah. health piece. Like I've, I've been working out and eating healthy since I, you know, I mean, not all the time, but most of the time <laughs> since I, I got sober, you know? And so I think that a lot of people miss that, like the health, like you got to go to doctor's appointments. You have to, you know, it's great to exercise. Even if you go for walks, whatever it is, you know, I damaged my body so much. I want to take, treat it well now. You know, so I just think there's some things that people don't think of just besides what's like right in front of them, but there's like all of this out there too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And, and see, I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. You know, it's like 12 steps plus try some different stuff out. You know, um, I never heard anyone in a 12 step meeting talking about self-limiting beliefs, you know? Um, or why or goal setting, uh, maybe once or twice, but not too much and not really how to do it. I think that's great that, um, you know, that that's a big part of what you work on with your clients and the recovery coaching, because I think what a lot of the times, like what I failed to see initially about why goal setting is important, like, well, I think number one, people think it's like this super simple, oh, well, I'm just going to set a goal and, and that's it. But um, you know, it's really important to do certain things like get specific and, and maybe even put some, some timetable to it. And, but I think what, what I failed to see, and maybe other people can kind of relate to is that it's like, how am I going to get someplace that I haven't even established what that looks like yet? You know, it's like the analogy I use is it's like, and I talk to my clients about this too, a little bit. It's like, that's basically like getting in the car and then just like driving and you have no destination, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, how, how are you going to get there? You yeah. know? Um, so I, I think that's, yeah, that's probably, and, and the low self-esteem and all that stuff makes, makes a lot of sense to me, but I, I think I'm, I'm with you in that I needed to know that there was something bigger or better definitely better than it was when i was you know getting high and and just totally destroying my life right and like we all have to get humble you know early in recovery and take like a job that might not be like our dream job and whatnot but i needed to know that there was a future ahead of that you know that this was a that was a stepping stone for me and i had a, a best friend um you know, with my best friend from eighth grade who actually passed away from an overdose in 2015. And then in her honor, I started a nonprofit, which is not operating anymore, but it was for a number of years that sent women in recovery to college. Because oh, wow. if a woman comes into recovery and she's lost everything, she knows that she can go get a college education. It's going to empower her to, to do something with her life, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think just one of the, the coolest things that was ever shared with me, and I try to share this with as many people as possible, is somewhere along the way, someone shared with me essentially what you said, that there really is no limit to how good life can get in recovery. And that's one, that has been my experience completely. Truth. People used to tell me, oh, you're going to fall off that pink cloud. And I'm here to tell them that like most days, I'm still on that damn pink wow. cloud 13 years later. I mean, I go through stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had my great moments through the COVID time and my, like, what the hell I need to go see a new therapist. Like mm -hmm. those, I mean, I've had my ups and downs, but I've lately, because I've pushed my, I've walked through the adversities, I've walked through the pain, I've, you know, the solutions I know that work, upping my meetings, you know, going to therapy, doing things that make me feel good. I, I feel like I could pinch myself every day now. Like, is this real? Like life is so good, you know? Cool. And we're like, I'm like, life is not, I mean, it's crazy out there, but like yeah. right here, it's good. Mm.
That's, I, I really love that you said that because people, I, look, there's, and you probably know way more about it than I do, but like when you stop using drugs and alcohol for a period of time, you're naturally going to feel better. And there's some physiological stuff going on there too, right? Your, your chemistry is almost trying to balance itself out and you may even feel some kind of euphoria. And then you throw in like recovery stuff and meeting new people and, you know, new thoughts and ideas, and maybe even the idea of some, some good things happening in your life. And like, you do feel great. And people say like, Oh, that's the, the pink cloud it'll go away like almost like uh don't worry you'll feel like shit you know in a couple like of, thanks yeah yeah and and i'm with you like i i don't think that not like every day it just feels like super incredible but or or that you know life doesn't happen because it does but i i am one of those people that believes like i don't think that feeling has to go away like i think maybe that's really just like grace to some degree yeah, yeah um, definitely and i think that 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 is kind of like what i think a lot of people aren't reaching for in their their recovery process or don't even know it's available to them you know yeah yeah that's a really good point now as i mentioned you're also the co-host of the overcoming adversity podcast tell us a little about the show Who, who's it for what do you guys talk about um, so my, my business partner of Next Level Recovery Associates and I, uh, Blake Cohen, we started it over, I guess, a year and a half ago. Um, and we wanted to highlight people that have been through something. Um, you know, some people are addiction and mental illness related, but others are health issues. Like one, one woman was diagnosed with Parkinson's at 27 or something like that. Wow. Another man lost a limb, someone who lost a child. So we want to hear about like their adversity and then like how they got through it and how they, what they do now positively to, you know, in the healing process. Cause most people, when they go through something like that, it shakes their life and they have to heal and they, then they end up doing good things for the, for others. So that's, that's pretty much our topics. Wow. That's cool. And, and so I'm sure you hear a lot of how people grow through that, through that adversity. Yeah, it's it's inspiring, and it, it really opened my eyes too. Because we we wanted to have some addiction stories, but we wanted to encompass other that like a lot of us in recovery kind of forget that there's so many people in the world that go through so many things that they feel the same way we do that sure. maybe didn't use substances. But there's just it's just people are remarkable and resilient for what they go through, and and you know and how they sh try to change the world positively with their healing process. It just is very inspiring. That's really cool. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, I, that's something that I think about more and more is like, I mean, there are people that are not in recovery that also have incredible stories. Yeah, have been through some just like awful things that you would think like, there is no way that this person is going to survive this, much less create something good from this. Right. And, right. and they do. So that's, that's pretty awesome. I think yeah. you just mentioned a, a few things. Amanda, but can you tell us a little bit about what your recovery looks like today? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, now, like now it's, it's definitely sharpened up since I've had to stay still because mm -hmm. one of my ways to get outside of myself without even knowing it is to stay busy. And I, it, that definitely showed me during this time that like, oh, Amanda, you didn't feel for a while because you stayed so busy, you know? So it was like, boom. But, um, you know, attending meetings, um, I believe in, you know, I have a sponsor. I have, um, I attend actually various 12-step fellowships and I'm like cool with it now I did all one for I did all you know one fellowship for nine years and I did another one only for two years and then now I'm just totally good with going what feels good you yeah. know yeah um and then I 
pray, meditate. I have my little trusty journal because I usually come up here because it's my office. I have my little journal and my readings. So <laughs> there you go. So I write um, right now and I've been doing it for months is like writing goals, gratitude and body love because, you know, I started to be too hardcore with some of the ways I was working out and, and I was acting like I was hating my body rather than loving it. So I'm trying to make sure I show my body love every day right now. So, um, you know, I speak to other people in recovery regularly. Um, uh, fitness is a great form of meditation for me. Um, I also do regular meditation. Um, being present in my life and in my family, you know, um, taking downtime because I literally was going for so many years that like I just, it was go, 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 go. And I think that's one thing that this has helped us all with is to be present and feel grounded. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just it shifts and changes. I go to retreats. I, you know, um, I can have women over for meetings. Um, you know, I go to therapy when I need it. I try different kinds of meetings, you know, I just keep trying and, and just put, put myself out there and, and I'm open to new things that are, could be you know beneficial and help me grow. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just staying open-minded. So important, no matter how long we've, we've been sober, how good, life gets. I think that's a really great point. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here sure. and I'm going to ask you if there's maybe uh, one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation. Well, I want people to know that they're capable of anything and that, you know, we we're our own worst critics often and we stand in our own way a lot, you know? So mm -hmm. If there's something that's like deep down in there that's a dream of yours that you think that you're not good enough for or you're you can't do it maybe someone else can i'm here to tell you that like you can do anything that you put your mind to you can do anything you put your heart to and nothing is out of out of reach you know um and believe in yourself you know because at the end of the day you know many people come and go but it's us and our spirituality and you know and then in this time our household that is what's there so put the efforts there I love that. Yep. You can do it. You can, you do, can it. do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you can catch an episode of the Overcoming, Overcoming Adversity podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. You can also learn more about Amanda's recovery coaching at nextlevelrecoveryassociates.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.